the weather. <laughs> it's right. fucking cold. It I think that's important. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined today by Daryl Lind, and also making his Weeds debut. We have Brian Resnick with us. How is it going? It's going well. It's going well. It's cold. It is cold. I would say we were hoping it, you could explain that to us. Well, I would say that it is not going well. It's really cold. Yeah. Well, there's this thing that's called winter. You know, the axis of the Earth is tilted, so you know the northern hemisphere gets more sunlight, and and some months, well, where, where does the bomb <laughs> come into it? Then? Yeah. Yes. And my only role on today's podcast, for the record, is just to say bombogenesis. Bombogenesis. The extent of my yeah. knowledge on this subject. It turns out that that's actually a very specific and nerdy uh, weather definition. That that I'm sure the first, uh, I don't know who, I think the Washington Post might have ran with this first, but I'm sure the second that they realized they can call this a bomb cyclone, it's like, that's the headline. Well, so you uh, the, I mean, let's explain, right? So it's, it, it's very cold yes. on the East Coast of the United States, also in the Great Lakes. Here in D.C., we got a little snow, but mm-hmm. big snowstorms in a lot of the country. But also, a couple days out, it didn't just look like it was going to get cold on my weather app, but there were headlines about a bomb cyclone. Bomb cyclone, yeah. Which is amazing branding. Yeah, I was talking to a meteorologist about this yesterday, and basically this is a typical winter storm that that has the ideal conditions where there, you know, this is a textbook example of the winter storms that we get here on the East Coast where it's the result of a difference in temperature between the land and the ocean. So the land ha- cools down much faster than the ocean. Like, it takes a lot more energy to get... The- get the ocean colder. So you have this weird influx of Arctic air uh, that's over North America, as we all know, for the last two weeks or so. It's kind of been stuck here. And then you have the ocean, which is relatively warmer. And, you know, when you have that temperature difference, you have, you know, that's like the engine of all of our weather, that um, these storms form along these temperature gradients, and that's what fuels them and creates those low-pressure systems. And was really cool and beautiful about this storm, at least according to meteorologists who are kind of uh, geeking out about this, that it kind of formed this really perfect comma shape. So, like, if you looked at the satellite photo yesterday of the storm, it, like, almost looked like a hurricane. It's not a hurricane at all. It's this, hurricanes are formed completely differently, and they look different. But this had this, like, you could see it, like, swoop up around New England and then down over the mid-Atlantic states and kind of like make this like little crook um, that looked like it was like going to punch Boston, you know, right in the nose there. Um, So it was really cool. Also in the satellite image, you could see that the storm was pulling in warm air from the tropics. And it was like um, this meteorologist I was talking to yesterday just said this, you know, even though these storms are awful and, and, you know, They're not pleasant, especially if you saw that flooding in Boston yesterday. Um, You know, they're important for the redistribution of uh, temperatures around the globe. So we're taking, you know, warmer air over the oceans and the tropics, and we're warming up this, like, really Arctic front that we have, you know, in the United States. And, you know, this is just a consequence of being in a world with seasons that's round. Okay, I have a lot of questions. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all... 
my last exposure to weather science was in seventh or eighth yeah. grade. And I thought that recalling from there that the serious storms happened when you had a cold front. And you're telling me now that there is this is the result of, in part, warm air getting pulled up here. How much is this storm system kind of independent of the traditional like pressure systems moving through thing? Yeah, well, I think this is the simplest way to think about it. It's the result of a difference. You know, it's very cold on land. The ocean is relatively warmer. When you have a difference in temperature, you have, you know, um, it, it encourages low pressure systems to form. And then low pressure systems, it's it's literally an area of air where there's less air. So, you know, that air is lighter. So the high pressure, you know, wants where there's more air, literally, you know, wants to go into the low pressure system which is then spitting back out the air and, you know, it's basically creating like a little engine. So, um, Brian is currently making circles yeah. <laughs> with his fingers for listeners, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's very it's the beautiful. <laughs> the, the beauty of audio. Yeah. But no, I would encourage check out. Um, it's the NASA goes satellite. It's our geostationary satellite. Um, it's, it's always looking at our half of the world. It stays in one place. And you can see these like really beautiful uh, images of the storm in this really nice comma shape. But so, but so, which part of this was a bomb? Okay, the bomb part. Yes, I <laughs> didn't get to that yet. Uh, so the bomb part of it, 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 this was the super technical meteorological term. It just means the pressure dropped. I think it was twenty four millibars over uh, twenty four hours, which probably means nothing to anyone. But the, the way this was explained to me, that average. Um, sea level pressure is usually around a thousand millibars. So you know, it's just like a drop of twenty four millibars over over 24 hours. Uh, we, we know when you have really intense hurricanes, like sometimes those pressures get down to like 900-ish millibars. So I don't know if that's helpful. It just means like there was a sudden drop in pressure, which means there's a rapid intensification of the storm. Because like I said, when there's less pressure, that means there's this weird area where there's less air. And that encourages movement because places where there's more air want to go to the places where there's less air. And we have weather. So that pressure drop was given the scientific name bombogenesis, yeah. which was then given the media name bomb cyclone. Right, which is a lot cooler. Coming to theaters in 2019. So, you know, after the kind of initial like, oh my gosh, bomb cyclone, there has been a little bit of pushback about, you know, this is a pretty typical winter storm. They just fi- found a cool name for it. How much is this you know, a typical a, a winter storm that is unusual in that it can be called a bomb cyclone, like bombogenesis is not a typical term versus bombogenesis actually is something that happens at a bunch of winter storms. And this happened to be the week that somebody realized they could stick it on a headline. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to be said about storm branding in the last couple of years or just weather branding. And um, for a lot of these events, there just seems to be a term that floats above the rest, like, you know, Arctic vortex and things like that. But um, what I say, what is unusual, we are experiencing unusually cold temperatures for this time of year. You can look up, um, there are maps of like average temperature anomalies around the globe, which just basically show you where it's compared to like a 30-year average where it's abnormally colder than than the normal or abnormally warmer. And on the whole, the, the world is like half a degree Celsius warmer than it should be. But here in the United States, for the last week or two, it's been about 10 degrees colder than normal. So we are actually in one of the weirdly coldest spots in the world right now. And that's there's really no reason for that. It, you know, some people say, 
that the jet stream, which is dipping down into the U.S., bringing down this Arctic air, um, is, becomes more unstable in a climate change world. But I think that's in a really not well-settled science. But in any case, it's cold. It's weirdly cold. And, it, it, and I think that's a part of why the storm had such um, – grew really rapidly and had that bombogenesis because it was so weirdly cold in the United States. And, you know, we're still early in the winter, so I think the ocean temperatures were still, you know, a little warmer. So there, I mean, there's an important point about climate change here, right? I mean, a, a week or so ago, we had the president was kind of like dunking on, on the libs uh, because it was really cold out. Mm-hmm. And he said maybe we could, we could use some of that climate change. Um, and then, of course, people were countering like nobody said there wasn't going to be a winter. Um, but you're saying, I mean, it's not just that it's winter now. Like it, it really is unusually cold. It is unusually cold, but in here, the, it, here. But then globally, just because it's unusually cold in Washington D.C. right now, doesn't mean it's unusually cold worldwide yeah. right now. This is the difference between climate and weather. Climate is uh, the saying goes: climate is what you expect, and weather is what you get. <laughs> so you know, there's always going to be these these weird um, or not weird because they're you know natural cycles, but there's always going to be variation and it's going to be a little chaotic. But I think this data just came out yesterday, or the day before. 2017 was the second warmest on record. Um, and what was the warm? Um, it's it's been in the last 10 years. So. Yeah, right. yeah, right. Yeah, I don't know exactly that, but <laughs> so you know, we're going down. You know, <laughs> well, the thing is like. Climate change. There's so many examples of how uh, how climate change is real that you don't need to pull into. Oh, you know, it's it's cold out here today, so climate change. But no, that, that, that has nothing. Like what we're experiencing now is a, f- a few weeks, but the evidence of climate change has been accumulating over months and years. And you know, that's that's the same difference between weather and climate. Climate, we're we're tracking over decades. Weather, you know, changes every day. So I do want to drill into this a bit because. I feel like just like it's very easy for, you know, the president and professional conservatives to use, but it's cold out as a rebuttal to global warming. There is an increasing tendency that I've seen among people who accept the science around climate change to believe that any unusual weather is also the result of climate change. And like, you know, climate change means more extreme weather, therefore, blah, blah, blah. blah. So can we maybe just kind of starting with the you know, the unusually cold temperatures that we have right now. And sorry to those of you who are not in the U.S. and and not on the East Coast that we're being a little parochial about this. But how much do we know about what, you know, the extent to which a 10 degree colder winter is the result of a climate change pattern or not? Yeah. Oh, well, and also to that, I will say that the West Coast is warmer than usual. When I said, you know, the U.S. is weirdly cold, it's, it's pretty much the Midwest and the East. And, sure. Uh, the real part. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, no, I won't uh, necessarily <laughs> agree to that. Um, but here's a good way to think about it. So we had this awful hurricane season, right? Um, these storms were intense. They came one after another. But I've talked to a lot of climate scientists about this, about, okay, what do we, what can we tell about global warming from, from these hurricanes? And the answer is there, we, we don't really know yet. Uh, like, so there, there have been some studies like Hurricane Harvey, the, the amount of moisture in that system was likely increased by factor 15% due to climate change due to warming. But just the number of storms, the intensity of storms, 
you know, we just don't have the data to say that, okay, yes, climate change predicts that these storms will grow bigger and more intense and perhaps more frequent as we as we go further into this climate changing world. But at the same time, we've only been tracking weather and storms uh, by satellite since the 1970s, where, you know, in the whole history of the Earth, you know, this stuff has been going on for, uh, you know, I'm not going to get the number right, <laughs> millions of years. Uh, so, there are a lot of these big, like hurricanes are the biggest, baddest, most in-your-face weather thing we have. They're huge. They, they cause billions of dollars of disasters. And you really want to use that if you're a climate change advocate um, as a salient moment. You know, okay, oh, this is a learning point that, you know, our world is changing. But we really can't say that yet. I, I think what a more interesting way to think about it that um, some sources have directed me to is like, we need to think about what happens in the world today as a baseline. And if we believe the science of climate change, which does predict, you know, this baseline is going to grow more intense and um, cause more damage, that, you know, whatever we experience in the world today is going to keep happening and it could be worse or more unpredictable. So I think that's an interesting way to think about it. Instead of saying like, okay, now is the apocalypse, like, some of that data is is inconclusive or not there or, you know, doesn't tell the most compelling story. Like there's a more compelling story to tell about Arctic sea ice, which is, you know, shrinking every year. And that's unambiguous. And there's a more compelling story to say about just global temperatures. Like we just said, uh, 2017 was the second warmest on record. Um, and all the warm years on record seemingly have been recently, you know. Um, so I think you're hitting on a really interesting point that sometimes gets really lost in I mean, that. This is interesting about about the hurricanes, right? Because for for temperatures, they have through this like ice core drilling method and other things, like actually really good now records of just like how warm is it on average. When they say like 2016 was the warmest year on record, 2017 was the second warmest, 2015 was the third warmest, people are speaking with with like a, a force yeah. of data behind that. Whereas with storms, which are very interesting, like when they're happening, there's not that much known historically, right? I mean, it's like you can look in old newspapers and say like, well, there was a hurricane in 1922, but like we don't have a good scientific assessment yeah. of like what storm frequency was in the past. So it's difficult to build like a really robust, Model, and that's especially true of places where the population that was living there until you know a century or two ago was wiped out or displaced or just thoroughly discredited as a civilization by the people who replaced them. I mean, I think that archaeologists are beginning to realize that there actually is some good stuff in the archaeological record of Native American civilizations in like the Midwest because they were much more urbanized than early settler early European settlers had been led to believe and therefore there actually is a good sense of, you know, when climate changes may have forced them to abandon their, their urban cores, but this is knowledge that we don't know how much of that is lost because things were just dismissed as legends that could now be treated as some kind of oral history of storms. Yeah. Well, I think these climate scientists, you know, they're making decent assumptions about the frequency of storms, but um, you know, whether the trend line isn't is making is becoming more intense or more frequent or 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 anything like that is just um I think one 
one person at NOAA told me, like, we there's just we just wouldn't have the grounds to say that yet. It's not like it's not true. Could totally be happening. They just can't see it yet, or they they don't have um, they wouldn't expect to see it yet. But you know, also what you were saying, you don't need climate change to know that Miami is susceptible to hurricanes. You don't need climate change to know that Houston is susceptible to flooding. Like this thing, these things happen. They've had they've happened in modern American history. They have happened throughout the 1900s into devastating effects and. That's what I was thinking about the baseline. Just think of all, like, the awful shit that's happened over the last hundred years. And just, you know, if you believe climate change, you have a lot of grounds to believe that it's going to get worse. And, you know, when I say if you believe climate change, like, you should believe climate change is real and, you know, trust trust these. Well, and if the sea level is higher, I mean, the the link between ice melting, sea level rise, and flooding is all pretty straightforward compared to— the complexities of storm yeah. intensity, right? I mean, you could, I mean, if the water is higher on a baseline, then the odds that there will be a flood is also higher. And yeah. it sure does seem like the political debate, even though we're not seeing like Republicans from Texas and Florida coming out and saying, I believe that climate change is real now because that hurricane sucked, we are seeing a little more sensitivity to climate concerns, right? Like not only Texas politicians being super keen to get aid for Hurricane Harvey, but also, you know, this week when the Trump administration announced that it was allowing a lot more offshore drilling, Florida Republicans were beginning to go, me. Maybe, you know, there's a little more understanding that that the populations in those states, even whether or not they believe that it's important for the government to say that climate change is real, they're a little more wary about what's going to be happening to, like, their homes that are on the coast. Well, in some ways, though, I think that's gone the opposite direction, right? That if you go back— 10 or 15 years, and Charlie Crist was governor of Florida, and he was a Republican at the time. One of his distinctive issues was that he wanted to see government action on climate change. And and it was a less part, I mean, it was an issue with a partisan element, but also a strong regional element at that time. And there was a sense of like, well, Florida is a very coastal, very low-lying state with a lot of flood vulnerability. So like a Florida Republican might be to the left on climate change of a Rust Belt Democrat. Uh, But now, I mean, Chris is a Democratic House member. Rick Scott is like saying maybe we shouldn't have coastal drilling, but you know, everybody, I mean, also, I mean, Donald Trump won Florida convincingly on his platform of, you know, debunk this, this Chinese hoax. I mean, I don't, I don't fully know the sort of like mass psychology of it, but it, it it seems to me like it's been a hundred percent just assimilated into people's like culture war frames in a way that now has like nothing to do with like where do you live or what might you have at stake. So I think that that is true to the extent that it's being called climate change, right? right? I think that the way that state and particularly local officials have been able to get around this has been not talking about, oh, well, this is going to be happening more often because of climate change and not even talking about, well, maybe, you know, Certainly not talking about maybe we shouldn't have major cities on the coasts, which is something that you kind of mentioned, Brian, that I want to put a pin in because I think is is important to discuss for later. But they're saying they're talking about things like resilience, right? They're talking about things like preparedness. These seem like 
basic functions that a government ought to serve, that a community ought to be thinking about. They don't, you know, it's easier to get on board with those things. And it does kind of open the door to a little bit more thinking about, I mean, Houston before Hurricane Harvey, like hadn't done, had done very little of what it had in theory set out to do, but was slowly moving towards, you know, thinking about how do we repurpose some of these low-lying areas. Uh, They just weren't doing it under the rubric of, well, we in the state of Texas all agree that climate change is a problem and therefore. So it's, it's been an interesting and the problem with things like this politically is that the minute that they do get assimilated into culture war frames, it becomes much more difficult to discuss them. I have you know, this is something that's currently happening or threatening to happen in Congress on immigration. So I've been thinking about it a bunch. But right now, it does seem like there's a little bit of space to talk about what cities and states can better do to ensure that they're not getting totally wiped out every two years that doesn't get into the bigger scientific argument. Yeah. And and also on that scientific argument, uh, I will say, and I, and I think I did mention this before, there are um, there's like this somewhat new class of science that um, they're trying to do climate change attribution studies. So um, this was recently presented at um, a meeting of the American Geophysical Union that two um, independent uh, scientific groups, they you can only do this by making some assumptions about how the world would have been without increased CO2 emissions. But, you know, they modeled Hurricane Harvey, the, the rain of it. This is the only thing they can really um, say with some intuition because the rain and the moisture is is more closely linked to to the heat of the world than it is the intensification of the storms and all that. It's just an easier easier thing to see. And so they took Hurricane Harvey and they say, okay, what would this storm would have looked like without climate change? And they came and these two different groups came to a similar number around 15% of the rain was um, increased due to climate change. And you know, we're seeing more of those studies too. So like I was saying before about like the intensity and and and, and the the number of storms, like we don't really know that, but we do know that, um, or at least we have a really good intuition and hunch and we have like a good mathematical basis to say that at least in Hurricane Harvey, you know, which which was devastating because of the rain, you know, that did have an impact. Um, so, you know, there, there, are, there are ways that this becomes a little less ambiguous when it comes to specific storms. And, you know, I don't know how that type of study would be received by politicians because it is, it is a hypothetical situation that they're creating. You know, this is not an experiment. And, you know, I don't, I don't know the math well enough to, to know, like, you know, what, you know, it's hard to falsify because, because it's a hypothetical, you know, you're, you're comparing two models uh, together. But um, it, it does, you know, this picture, there are cases to be made that, okay, Houston, you know, I'm not going to say you have a problem, but. Um, <laughs> no, please do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the way they explained to, that, that, like, at least what happened in Houston, that it's, it, it's still a really rare thing that happened there. It was like once in a thousand right. plus year flood. But as, as Darren knows about. I hate about that concept, term yeah. so much. But, but the odds of that happening have increased to, I think it was the figures between 1.5 and five times. Like it's between one and a half and five times more likely that a Harvey-like flood will happen um, than, you know, in our world without climate change, according to these analyses. For the record, the the reason that I hate the term thousand-year flood, uh, and I wrote about this when Harvey was a thing, which is what Brian was referring to, uh, is that as Brian was saying earlier, we don't have 
tremendous amounts of data uh, historically. So when these models were made, and a thousand-year flood doesn't literally mean this happened only once in a thousand years of data. It means there's a 0.1% chance that this would happen in any given year. So that was based on a relatively, you know, a relatively small amount of data for what it ended up predicting, which is also fairly outdated at this point because they don't go and reassess that every year. So, you know, I think the concept of baseline that you introduced, Brian, is really useful to understanding this is the term thousand-year flood in places like Houston where they haven't actually updated the flood, you know, they they were like in the midst of updating the kind of flood table assessment for the first time in 15 years when, you know, they were going through that process when Harvey hit. That's not really the way that they expect things to work and they've quantified it is based on a baseline that doesn't exist anymore. The baseline is shifting and it's shifting rapidly. And therefore, you know, the idea that they've had like 3,000 year floods in the last 10 years or whatever is a good way rhetorically to get a sense of a shifting baseline, but it doesn't actually mean, none of the terms in that sentence literally mean what they purport to mean. So it can be a really confusing way to talk about things. Right. I mean, especially in in areas like that, I mean, Houston area, Southern Southern Florida, where there's been such rapid um, real estate development, right? I mean, there's there's, there's shifts in the climate, but there's also just tremendous shifts in like what what is the physical geography of the Houston area? I mean, to even talk about on a thousand-year time span, I mean, on a 20-year time span, right, Houston is really different from how it used to be. So you would have to be – I mean, it, it's a strange way to to talk about things. I mean, I guess – I think there's a feeling in the media that people do not like explicit probabilities and that it's therefore better to come up with linguistic workarounds rather than to say we think – this has gone from there being a 0.1% chance of occurring in any given year to a 0.15% chance. But this is the weeds. Yeah, We feel like you can handle it. Yeah, This is actually a question that I want to ask Brian, because I feel like over the last couple of years in particular, there's been this very public discussion among scientists and science communicators about how do we talk about climate change in a way that gets people to realize that this is a big problem. And like, as someone who, you know, I think Matt and I both are pretty used to, we know that when we're talking to policy advocates, they're going to, they're not going to lie about the policy, but their assessment of what's important is going to be dependent on what they think needs to change. And that can be kind of a frustrating way to talk about policy sometimes. So I'm wondering if you've kind of gotten a sense that this conversation about how do we make the public care about climate change, do you do you see that threatening to like eat the science in any way? Or do you think that there are people who are committed to making sure that the knowledge base is being built up separately from this discussion of public-facing work? Yeah, well, scientists are going to, you know, the truth is the truth. You know, scientists in pursuit of it, you know, they, they're they going to keep doing their work, you know, whether they have funding to do it or not. You know, they're going to, our knowledge base is, of course, going to increase. Um, there's an interesting concept in psychology that I think about a lot when it comes to this. Um, I think it's called solutions aversion. So, People aren't necessarily afraid of truth. They're uh, afraid of, like, where it leads. So there are some very clean experiments that show, like, if you have the same set of data but you come to a different solution, um, people will change their minds on, like, how they feel about the data. So when it comes to climate change, um, people 
don't like the solution to it, which is, you know, the government is going to regulate things more. You know, it's going it, to, you know, people are literally telling you, no, don't, you know, don't burn that fossil fuel. You can't use gas guzzling trucks. It's, it's an extreme intrusion in our lives. And, you know, it, it's climate change addressing it is changing our world. You know, a lot of these things are already happening and, you know, there are market forces and all that stuff at work. But, you know, for a lot of people and also a lot of p- politicians, I wouldn't ever want to think like, okay, they can't, you know, they're, they're just unwilling or unable to think through the science. No, there, there's like a very real reason why they don't like talking about climate change and because it leads to things that they don't want to see in the world. And um, I don't know how to address that other than to, I think that's the one way to understand it. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day, right? It's like if you showed a normal person, I mean, if you showed me like a picture of a cow that had suffered some kind of injury and it was like looking sad and you were like, isn't this sad, this cow in pain? And I think everyone would be like, yeah, that that is sad, right? Whereas if you like showed up at my house in the middle of dinner and were like, this meat that you're eating is a moral scandal, <laughs> like I'd be really upset, you know, and like and like would want to push back on like your whole broad theoretical sort of notion, yeah. right? And it's the same thing, right? It's like at, at this point, people know that the upshot of talking about how average global temperatures are changing and like storm patterns are shifting, people know that like the end game there is like gasoline costs $5 a gallon or, you know, like your town that's dependent on fossil fuel extraction, like has its economic basis devastated. And then they're not like anything, right? It's like what people are resisting is the part that they don't yeah. want. It's not like the and, science, quote unquote. And I think a part of advocates, um, <laughs> something that I've been thinking about a lot and I've been reporting on is this concept of the the um, arguments that we find most compelling are not the most compelling for other people, but yet they're the ones we go to. So like when I'm saying, you know, like, oh, storms are going to get worse or, you know, um, polar bears are dying or, uh, you know, like whatever argument that convinces me that climate change is a problem, we shouldn't, it, it is a problem to assume that is what's going to convince other people. And there's a lot of interesting work on psychology and, and this idea is called moral reframing that, you know, some people just have this gut instinct to, you know, when you tell a person that th- this is unfair, you know, a liberal is going to care a little bit more about unfairness than than a conservative. Um, and it, it's, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. But just like this, the overall idea is that we need to be more clever and more creative and and think and like and also think about arguing with empathy. Think about arguing like, OK, what is something that you care about that is changing, um, you know, rather than, you know, I don't want to necessarily make this a binary, like liberals are convinced by this and conservatives are convinced by this. It's just like a call to think about what we find convincing and and just acknowledge that it's not working, that that what we find convincing, you know, as we broadcast this out, I'm sure all of our listeners are finding this convincing, you know, and, and if they repeat what they what we say on the show today, you know. I wouldn't necessarily expect their neighbors to find it convincing, you know, because we respond to different things. So the idea of the person in the living room telling you not to eat meat kind of, I think that the, you know, the thing that we've now touched on a couple of times is 
should we be telling people to move away from the coasts? Or at least should the government not be encouraging, say, you know, federally providing flood insurance to people living on the coasts? And I kind of want to kick that over to you, Matt, because I I, I believe you have some feelings. Oh, well, I mean, the, the flood insurance program seems very bad in a variety of ways. At the same time, I mean, I don't think there's super persuasive evidence that, like, the existence of federal flood insurance is, like, the reason that the population of Texas and Florida has been increasing over time. Um, And I don't actually know how you think about, like, systematic climate vulnerability type type issues. I mean, you you just, you do see, like, financially in the Texas situation, right, that the, the basis of the flood insurance program is that the private sector doesn't want to provide this. I mean, it's similar to health insurance that we talk about all the time on the weeds. Um, but with health insurance, I mean, not everybody agrees, but we can all understand, like, what is the case that, like, uninsurable health risk should, in fact, be covered through public subsidy so that sick people can get medicine? It's like, it's not obvious why uninsurable flood risk is something that we should all bear as a society. Like, you could just not have a house there. I mean, America has a lot of people in it, but there's also a lot of space here. Like, you don't need to be in the Mississippi River floodplain that we could we could just build the houses someplace else. Well, I, I don't know like the intricacies of of um, flood insurance and how it creates motivations, but I do know people, and I know that leave is a little bit of a non-starter. Like, oh, you have to leave your home. Like that's right. I'm not sure if I'm not sure that conversation goes anywhere besides to to, to get people annoyed and resisting. It's like the next set of homes could be located in safer yes. places or or less safe places. But I mean, it does, I mean... After- I wonder if, if you know, if we're having this conversation about, you know, strategic retreat, and, and I don't know a ton about, you know, how people think through how to do this, but I wonder if, like, some people hear that and think, like, oh, you're telling me that I have to leave? You know, like, I wonder that that term, it probably probably is a turnoff for some people. I don't, I don't know that. But, yeah, um, and I, I also think that we've seen, we know where something like don't tell people to leave, but don't put new investment into it leads. It leads to what like manufacturing towns in the Rust Belt have been going through for the last several decades, right? Where like no one has left and they consequently feel abandoned because no one is bothered. You know, they don't feel that there are national institutions that are taking a personal interest in their community's well-being. I think that that you know, the kind of conversation that we've had over Trump voters who feel abandoned, blah, 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 is a useful model for what happens when people feel that the place that they live is important and there needs to be more personal attention paid to it and more effort made to ensure that, you know, whatever impersonal forces, be they meteorological or economic, don't impact their way of life. Yeah, you have to assume, maybe hopefully, people love their homes, you know? And and when you're having a conversation where the implicate the solution is leave your home, you know, that's scary. You don't want to think about the things that lead to uncomfortable solutions. So, um, yeah, I don't don't know. I'm just, like, completely speculating here. But, yeah, if if, if we're talking about climate change in a way or we're talking about any of these things in, in our world today that where the solution is, Oh, you have to you have to change your life. You have to leave. You have to uproot. Like that's, I think that's going to be something people avoid and resist. And they resist the things that lead you to that thought. So you know, if 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 Trump voters are feeling left behind, and for reasons that are outside of the control of them, and and you know, for for reasons that have to do with big things in the economy, you know, 
I, I can understand that. I can understand that 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 feeling. Something I, I do think is interesting is about 10 years ago, I was in the, the Netherlands, which is obviously a country that has had a lot of flooding issues historically going back centuries and enormous like uh, water control-related public works uh, long before climate change. And, and I spoke to people there at that time, and they were saying, you know, it's a small European country. They were like on board for the European climate change efforts. Uh, but they were also saying that they were sort of looking forward to some commercial opportunities that they have incredible expertise in flood control. And they were anticipating that major coastal American cities would be sort of coming to them mm-hmm. for their engineering expertise. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. I kind of wrote it on my notebook. I didn't think about it much. Um, then after the Sandy Storm hit the New York and, and New Jersey area, I thought back to those conversations and I, I got in touch with some some Dutch people. And it turned out one of the museums in New York had actually collaborated with the Dutch engineering firm on like imagining a greater New York flood control type area. Uh, I wasn't the only person who did a story on this at the time. It was like, it became a topic of conversation because, you know, some places are sparsely populated, but there are so many people and so much wealth in greater New York City that, you know, like the Netherlands, right? They've for centuries there have just been like, we're going to do what it takes to preserve this area. But what's been interesting to me is that after that sort of two weeks worth of hot takes, I mean, this was years ago now, like nothing has happened. And that's in an area where it's not in like... In the Netherlands? No, 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 I, in New York, right? In, in an area where it's not like the voters in New York and New Jersey are on a culture war level, mm-hmm. averse to acknowledging climate change. Uh, and they're certainly not averse to acknowledging something like Donald Trump is a bad president and is not going to prevent sea level rise. And they're not even necessarily, like, in an abstract sense, averse to, like, paying taxes or having there be government programs. But still, the idea of, like, we should actually accept the logic of our own convictions about this and try to do something, like, does not seem—it doesn't seem compelling even in a sort of heart of of blue America-type type sense, right? To like motivate people to say like we might need I mean there were a range of different things. There was like this like build a giant wall from Staten Island to Brooklyn version of it. And there was a more like eco-friendly like plant oyster bays in lower Manhattan to but but I mean beyond the specifics of it, it was it just kind of became like, well, that storm was a big deal, but it didn't happen. So now let's act as if there will never be another storm again. Even though, like, it destroyed the subway, they have to close the L train now for a year. Like, it's actually ongoing devastation to to the city, and nothing is really being done in a like in a in a blue place, in a place where you can't just be like, well, you know, they don't know. Well, I mean, I wonder if that does kind of if the investment in climate change is real and serious kind of cuts against any smaller mitigative solutions, right? The the fact that geoengineering has become a thing that, you know, serious policy wonks on the right discuss as a way to talk about climate change without accepting, you know, global emissions agreements, I think has done a lot of, has made it very difficult to discuss climate any kind of response to climate change that isn't global emissions agreements on the left, right? Like, well, if we're not doing anything to keep the problem from boiling the entire planet, it seems 
you know, maybe a little bit selfish, maybe a little bit like admitting defeat to do something that's going to protect your community, you know, rather than fixing the whole problem at once. But I do think that that kind of, you're right, Matt, that's a pretty obvious thing that regardless of whether we were in the Paris Climate Agreement or out of the Paris Climate Agreement, maybe New York should be thinking about not getting flooded again. And, and that's why, you know, I was saying before, you know, when you, after a hurricane and you see all these headlines, like, this is climate change, this is our world, I, I really get the intention behind people who want to push that 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 headline that you know this this hurricane is is you know the signal of our doom that um you know people act when they have something in front of them to respond to so um yeah i i, I can see that um point there but also you know it's, it's just like the ultimate kick down the line because we're, we're we're still talking about like generational problems here and you know these are you know, our problems today, but they're they're more so problems in the future. And that's, you know, just always the great tragedy of humans that, you know, we have, we can't quite comprehend how we're like this multi-generational thing that, uh-huh. you know, um, this, is, this is the total segue, but I'm always astounded by the fact that like what separates us from like the first modern humans is about, I think it's about 200 generations. So like, it's not, you know, that sounds it, like a lot. It does sound like a lot, but it's also like a number you can count. It's not, you right. know, it's not, you can imagine knowing 200 people. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tough problem. I mean, and it's a, it's a difficult, I mean, you're talking about how, you know, something happens and people want to react. And that's just a difficult interaction with the political process, right? It's like, it's one thing to resolve to, you know, you could like finally clean out that closet. You know, but like policy change doesn't happen on that kind of time frame. Like it's it doesn't it doesn't occur during a couple days that you get jazzed up about something. It requires, um, you know, like focusing moments make a difference, but it requires real sort of sustained effort over time. And that's particularly true for a problem that itself is extremely long term. And so it, it does make me wonder, you know, it's like if you, I don't know how invested you want to get sort of politically in the in the quick pushes, because it's hard to imagine a world in which like, say that there could be a really bad hurricane, everyone could be like, oh, I, I agree, like that hurricane that was due to climate change. So we have to do something. And then it's like, well, what are you going to do? Right? Like over the next five days, like nothing, right? Like, like any kind of moment like that is going to dissipate before like a multi-part congressional legislation changes. Yeah. Yeah. And just to correct something I said before, I, I was wrong. You're right. 200 generations, much too small. It's 10,000 to 15,000 um, people that separate us from the origins of humans. But yeah, 10,000 uh, people, still, that's, that's a ton. Still manage- yeah, no, but it's still like, you can think of 10, you know, you can think of 10,000 people. Um, you can think of like, you're, you know, we're a part of this chain of like 10 to 15,000 people. This is why now. the media doesn't have credibility anymore. Why? You're 200 generations. Yeah. It's well, I corrected news. myself on that. Uh, yeah. a- <laughs> I do want to – the problem, Matt, is that policy maybe shouldn't get done in bursts of five days. But, like, at least domestically, the status quo that we've found ourselves in over the last, say, five years, may- maybe even since 2010, so I guess now almost eight years, is that – policy does get made in quick bursts because Congress acts only when there is an impending deadline or it, you know, they finally cobble together the votes and then they build the bill to go with it. And I think we saw over the last year that that 
can actually work in the case like case of tax reform where there is Republican expertise on how the tax code works and what, you know, where cuts could be made. That is a thing that they know a lot about. It did not work so well when they were talking about health care reform, and it turned out that there wasn't the actual policy knowledge to figure out a deal that was both politically going to work and going to work as policy. I was thinking more of the, the slow burn of the Administrative Procedures Act, though, and, like, put, putting these things together. Uh, no, I mean, that's true. I mean, I guess if you have... A notion sort of on the table, right? I mean, that's like worked out in the small groups. It's possible to then like rapidly kind of tip it over, right? I mean, that's basically the situation with with the taxes, right? That like people, there had been work done sort of slowly, quietly on this. And this is something that, I mean, it does strike me about – we're getting far afield here, but like, <laughs> but like, Democrats have become much more optimistic about their chances in the 2018 midterms, and not in a like messaging sense. I'm not sure what they're running on, but in a like real world sense, I'm not sure what the like secret conspiracy is. Like, if you get the majority, like, like, what will you do, right? And now Donald Trump would still be president, so the answer isn't like pass a comprehensive climate change package. But I'm not even sure there's the answer of like well, what if you win in 2020? And of course, they have a few years to work it out, but you do have to work that out, right? I mean, you have to have some, to imagine making big political changes, you need to win some big electoral victories, you probably need some good luck, but you also need like a plan, right? Like if we benefit from good fortune and quickly have the chance to go do something, like what will we do and there was the there was in 2007 2008 2009 there was like a notion of like what would a big climate change bill look like and ultimately didn't pass but it got like kind of close to passing and now 10 years later it's like if you were going to do something what would you do and i think it's very unclear i mean david roberts wrote for vox that he thinks it should sort of look like what they tried before, uh, which like may be true, but you know you need you need people to to buy in on that. I actually do think that there's uh, something to be said for a little bit of tactical, if not am- not ambiguity, but you know lack of commitment on these <coughs> things. I you know on on immigration, the consensus around what comprehensive immigration reform would look like was so thoroughly baked from. 2008 to 2013, that by the time it actually was, you know, yes, it took them, it took the Gang of Eight a bit to work out a bill, but once that bill was introduced, there was really not a lot of room to get buy-in. And because members of Congress have massive egos, it turns out that if they're not involved in the process, they're, they want, they want some kind of courtship ritual, right? So that ended up with something in the Senate, it didn't end up working out in the House. And I think we saw with tax reform that they were at the point of having to promise extraneous things to Susan Collins and Jeff Flake that they then, you know, didn't necessarily follow through on. Because once you have the policy baked to a certain point, you can't actually tweak it that much to get people on board. So I think that there is something to be said for at least casting a wide net, thinking about what are various ways that you could get to this solution, and then giving the, you know, giving the elected officials the theater of working out, you know, what they want and making their own demands. So optimistic. Yeah. Well, this is why I like um, scientists better than politicians, because scientists think intergenerationally. So 
the like the the quest to find life on other planets has like a two hundred year plan on it, and, you know, and the people starting this very real thing that that it's possible to you know we can potentially find a planet out there that looks like it has life. The people who are on this project now won't see it, and um, and they know that, and they know like they're passing the baton on to to another generation. Um, people working on climate, you know, same thing. They're they're thinking about these problems intergenerationally. Um, which is, I love that perspective. And, you know, <laughs> just like hearing you to discuss uh, Congress, you know, it's just, just such a different uh, world and, you know, way of thinking about things. But at least um, that's why. Wait, how are they going to find life on other planets? Oh, do we want to get into this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, maybe we have to bail out, go to this other life support. Yeah, planet. I mean, that's really, um, I think people find a, a really good sense of optimism that we could potentially leave one day. Uh, but um, it, it basically comes down to, um, you can look at the planets that are orbiting around distant stars um, by looking at f- basically flickers in that stars. So when the planet goes in front of the star, the, the the quality of it light did. coming yeah and 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 we're going to get more and more sophisticated at using that information to determine what is the composition of that planet and you know there are a few if we ever come across one of those planets they're like oh this has this is oxygen you know oxygen is a byproduct of life it doesn't naturally occur in the universe like all that frequently that I'm like okay something there is producing oxygen that's cool so when you're saying that they're thinking intergenerationally, is this just they're publishing scientific papers that somebody can build on, that somebody can build on, that somebody can build on? Or are scientists working to build institutions to make sure that there's, you know, to secure funding streams, that kind of thing for projects that they may not live to see the fruits of? Uh, probably the probably the first one. <laughs> you know, I think the, 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 the funding institutions of science are much more political, um, you know, of thinking mindset than scientists would like. But, you know, as scientists being just like daydreamers and, you know, um, being um, when they wax poetic about the work they do, I, I think a lot of them think of them as like carrying a baton and or setting up projects or setting up questions that m- they may not be able to answer, but hopefully they can, you know, provide a clue for the next generation or, you know, also scientists, they want to answer the questions this generation, too. But, um, you know, it takes a, takes a long time to learn a thing. Well. If you yourself are sitting here listening, saying, what is a multi-generational undertaking I could do? The answer is joining the Weeds Facebook group, uh, recommending this and other exciting Vox Media podcast networks to your friends and family to spread the gospel, the knowledge of policy and also weather, science, things like that. Um, so, you know, thanks to everybody uh, for, for, for listening. Thanks to uh, Peter Leonard for producing. Uh, thanks a lot to, to Brian for joining us today and uh, expanding the the wings of weeds uh, out into some some new topics. Uh, We'll be back next week. 